Welcome back to the Christ in Culture, the show where we discuss culture as a means of evangelization by finding elements of Christ and his church revealed within. This is Clint. And this is Gordon. Gordon, I'm in a little bit of a different situation than normally when we're recording. I just moved and yeah, you, you can kind of see, but I don't have my like studio, if you can call it that, set up yet. So I'm literally just holding the mic this whole time. So if I sound a little weird, that would be why. <laughs> That's okay. I'm recording with my microphone for the first time in a while. Yeah, you sound fabulous. It's going to be great. So speaking of uh, things we haven't done in a while, I have not been taking in much media. So hopefully you have something new to share with us. Okay. I, I do. I have, well, if you haven't been taking much in, do you want to go first? I mean, do you have anything at all or no? Yeah, I think I have uh, one or two things here. If I can find my notes. Okay. Yeah. So I have been doing a lot of Sudoku. which is not a type of media that we normally talk about, but I've been playing a lot of Sudoku. And the reason for that, it's going to sound kind of weird, but it actually is kind of calming to me uh, because I kind of figure out how to do it. It's pretty just monotonous. Um, So yeah, it's just been kind of soothing whenever I have like a stressful day or whatever. And then I was listening to the Moana soundtrack for a while. I've played uh, two board games, Settlers of Catan, which I just played this afternoon. And a couple of days ago, I played for the first time Lord of the Rings deck building game. I got smoked. I That's was cool. Uh, but it's a really fun game. And the last thing that I've been taking in is a while ago, I told you about the Star Kid musical productions. Yeah. So I went back and listened to a very Potter sequel, which is the sequel to the Harry Potter show that they did. And it was hilarious. So <laughs> That's all I've taken in. Not a whole lot. Okay. That's about on par with, with me. I, I've, started two mobile games one is there's dr mario like the classic dr mario but they revamped it for the phone and it's all like in 3d pixelation you've been playing so many mario games i know i know i just saw it and i was like well i gotta do this because i'm obsessed with mario odyssey now but i had to give that back to my brother because i came back to texas so can't play that anymore i've been playing dr mario on my phone a little bit um, but mostly there's like a, a Harry Potter Mario, uh, not Mario, I was almost Harry Potter Mario game. Um, <laughs> no, a Harry Potter. Threw you uh, off with the Star Kid like, thing. Yeah, yeah. Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery or whatever, some app um, that I've been playing from time to time. It's one of those games where you run out of juice to use very quickly. So I don't play it very often. But when I'm bored, I just, I pull, I'll pull it up. And then. The biggest thing is me and Lizzie started uh, Legend of Korra like three days ago. Okay, so we we briefly texted back and forth about about that situation. So first off, how are you feeling so far about Legend of Korra? Well, I it can't, you know it's on Netflix, right? Yeah, it, it just came on Netflix as we were dropping our episodes the other week. Yeah, it was crazy. I didn't even know that. And I was like, oh, you want to watch this? Because I've never seen that one. Um, and so we were really talking about last night because we finished one of the episodes. And I was like, this show is so different than Avatar. Uh, it's great. It's just two different versions of an anime where it's like Avatar is like very um, set in a period piece and kind of sticks to that. And then this one is almost like playing off of Avatar. So like we need these 
same kind of character tropes that we had in the avatar, but we also need to change it up a bit. So change gender roles and, and, but then it's also like steampunk. And it reminds me a lot of um, uh, the movies Atlantis or Treasure Island with the way they dress. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so like that and like the, the tone of the show is so different, but I like it. Like, so far, I understand why you say you like Avatar better because I'm sure with a rewatch, I would get I could watch Avatar and over again versus this one. But I really do enjoy this show so far, and I like the way they set it up to where it's like, first one was a show about you know airbending against airbending. Now it's about airbending against something that deflects all type of bending, not airbending, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, there's a lot of cool stuff that I think is developed in uh, Legend of Korra. Uh, I also like that each chapter is totally different from any chapter in the previous. Like, I don't repeat uh, any of the bending methods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so cool. you start getting into really into the specialty bending that we just started to get in season three of Avatar: The Last Airbender. But yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of like two completely different shows that just happen totally. to take place in the same world. Yeah, essentially, which makes me excited for the thing we were texting about that he said like he's not done with the Avatar universe. Makes yeah. me excited with other things that he could create that are like still drastically different, but very cool. So for those of you who aren't like complete Avatar nerds, like uh, like me new and, myself, and Gordon's moving into the, to that uh, realm here. But most of us were super excited. We even talked about this on, I think, the first Avatar episode we did about how Netflix was making or is making a live action version of the show. Not a movie, but a full show. And we just found out as we were dropping our episodes that the creators of Avatar, um, Michael DiMartino and Brian, something that I can't pronounce, uh, they, they both left. They left the show for creative differences and they just felt like their view of the show wasn't happening. So they, they stepped away. And then I just read this morning, actually, that the main difference was that Netflix wanted to hypersexualize the whole thing, uh, which is just really disappointing because it's, it's it's a kid show, you know. Yeah. They're they're teenagers, like, and it was already good to begin with. That was one of the good. But they're turning it into any type of like young adult Netflix yeah. series now, which is it's just so disappointing. And I totally understand. And I mean, people are really hating on on Michael and Brian, and I'm like. I would do the same thing in their position. Oh no, I hope nobody hates on I mean, I know you said they were, but I hope nobody hates on them. In my my opinion, it's Netflix. Netflix has lost my like before I even knew that when I read that article, I was like, well, now I'm not even excited. They might as well just stop making it. Yeah. So I I really hope that they have a change of heart and and do it right, but man, it's, it's just disappointing. So disappointing. So and then uh that's pretty much it for new stuff. Uh, I listened to the new Taylor Swift album earlier this morning with Lizzie while we were working because she's obsessed with it. And I've wanted to get into it. I just haven't done a sit down. Um, is it good? It is. It is good. Uh, some people are like upset about when it was dropped. Um, but uh, everyone else I know has listened to it and is a Swift fan. Has, they think it's like her best album yet. So That's what I've heard. I, I think I listened to the first song and then just got distracted with work or something. And that's exactly what I've, I've tried it multiple times. And I just keep just like, I've had a hard time like listening, listening to an album lately, but yeah, yeah, it's been good. I liked it. 
cool i'm excited for it because you know i i like folk music to begin with and old taylor swift is definitely the best taylor swift and i heard it's kind of getting back to her roots a little bit but changing it up even still so yeah i'm excited yeah no it's good and then today's topic because i haven't led in a while and i need to get back back to my roots um i'm really taking in a lot of stuff that like could be podcasty which i know is saying a lot because i'm always the one that's like anything could be podcasty so i'm up for a challenge so i mentioned last episode that i recently what we was me and lizzie watched this series waco and it was either that and umbrella academy but i always just feel the pressure that you felt with avatar to take on umbrella academy as a podcast because there's just so much um to that show so i was like i'll just do waco this time umbrella academy will be set to a side and it's so weird because we've done so many movies and shows that we love and we've had no problem doing it you know it's just there's certain shows that it's 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 just hard you and you and i have talked about it we could do umbrella academy where each episode is one character yeah and that's the problem. It's like, there's just so many moving. It's almost like doing a, a podcast on Endgame, which we've done, but we could do another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just too many moving parts. But so I'm going to do Waco. And this one's also actually, as I was planning it, like, oh man, this is hard. Because there's also so much to wake the Waco siege, which is, if you don't know, we'll get into what that is in a second. But it's a real historic event. And I'm not trying to go into really too much of like what happened or what didn't happen or the true story versus the show. I'm just trying to touch on the miniseries. And so there's two resources I will add at the, to this podcast. If you want to learn more about Waco, which I certainly do, because that's one reason I want to touch on it. I don't really know a lot besides this show. Um, I learned a lot today prepping this. But uh, Jimmy Atkins, Mysterious World, he touches on this in his podcast. And then the Council of Trent podcast, also with Jimmy Atkins, in, on that episode touch on this and they actually go with i know the council of trent because i use that one a lot for this podcast they go through verbatim the show and what truly happened um and then they did it jimmy, on council of trent too he did yeah and then jimmy akins i attached his podcast because he has so many different links he has like it's another docu series he has like the books you can read he has so, so if you're like i want to just digest as much as you can i would go to jimmy akins for the other links I would go to Council of Trent for their conversation on the truth versus the miniseries because that's, um, but I'm not going to try to touch on that too much. Yeah. If you guys are people who've been listening for a while, you've probably heard us talk about those shows before. I, I love both those podcasts, especially Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. That's the one where I first heard of Waco because I wasn't quite alive at the time um, and I'd never heard of it. Not, okay. not at all until Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Yeah, Lizzie hadn't heard of it at all either. He does such a good job though. So, yeah. so good. So you, you definitely want to check that out uh, if you're interested in more information. I think it's, because I did a bunch of research after watching the show and in between, like after listening to his podcast and he he covers it so well. Yeah, he's the one that pretty much runs the show on Council of Trent too, because pretty much Trent watches it with his wife. Like they watch the show and he's like, I want to know the truth, but I don't want to do the research. I'm just going to call Jimmy Akins on. Yeah, if you guys aren't familiar with those names either, so those are both Catholic apologists who work for Catholic Answers, but Jimmy Akin just is like a a brilliant genius of a man. So So in a nutshell, this show, it's a mini-series, so it's six episodes and done, tells the whole story, sort of. Uh, It's a dramatization 
So they, like, you know, a Hollywoodized version of the Waco siege that took place between February 28th and April 19th, which is 51 days in the year of 1993. It tragically resulted in the deaths of 76 people at Mount Carmel Center in Waco, Texas. So it's kind of just outside of Waco, but that was the closest city to where this, it was pretty much like a, a compound, is what they referred to, and it was almost like a commune was situated in. And, and although a lot of what happens or what ha- happened is like disputed and unknown and controversial, uh, one thing that I will repeat that Jimmy Akins talks about is this show sides a little more sympathetically with the Branch Davidians compound. So with the compound versus the uh, police or not the police, the military and the ATF. Um, And so he's saying that's not entirely true. There's a little more responsibility on the religious people's side, but it's, it's dramatized. Uh, and part of that too is because one of the um, people who were offering insight and information on right. the whole thing was David Thibodeau, right. who I'm, I guarantee you'll, you'll talk about. So, well, yeah, but he so was one, one of the branch Davidians. Yeah. And one of the survivors has helps made the show. And then what I do respect though, is they based the show off of two books, David Thibodeau's books and Gary Nosner's book, who was the FBI negotiator. And he was on the other side of things. He's my favorite character of the entire show, but before we go into those people, just the backstory, uh, the Waco siege is often referred to as just a, an American tragedy on, on both ends of just like uh, people getting to one place as well as just the way we and our government handled the situation. The Branch Davidians were this religious sect that lived in this commune uh, on, on Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas. And basically that began from a Protestant sect that create, was created in the 1800s called the Seventh Day Adventists. Um, and yeah, and from certain deaths and disagreements and f- certain followers that just got received visions that made them think they were prophets of God. Eventually, a set, like a sect out of a sect later, like the kind of people start breaking away, the Branch Davidians or the Davidians of the Seventh Day Adventists were kind of formed in 1942. And the leader that's seen in this show, uh, David Koresh, was not the leader at the time. He joined much later as just like a follower and then received a vision, I think in like Jerusalem. Um, and he eventually just became uh, the leader. And his name is not actually David Koresh. He gets that from scripture. You know, they, they think that they're allowing the, uh, the Christ of the line of David to come and then he thinks that he is very similar to the prophet Cyrus, which the Greek root to that is Koresh, or the Greek word for that is Koresh. So he's naming himself after what they believe. So David Koresh. David comes from King David, right? Right. Yeah. The line, they're, they're allowing the second coming of Christ through yeah. the line of David to come. So okay. King David and uh, the prophet Cyrus. Uh, so David Koresh, he becomes a leader in like somewhere in the 1980s, pretty soon to when this happened. And they essentially just believe in the idea of the second coming of Christ, mostly through the apocalypse and revelations and the end of the world. But they think it's happening like very soon and now. And they're essentially there to live and allow their followers to live faithful lives to God. So as those seven seals in revelations are broken, they find God's glory in the end. So that's kind of the idea. That's what's out on this commune. The ATF which stands for like alcohol, tobacco, and firearms department, they got wind that 
these Branch Davidians were storing illegal firearms. So because they got wind they were storing illegal firearms, they're like, they received search and arrest warrants for the compound. There's a lot of iffy stuff with that. That's why you'd want to go listen to Jimmy Akins and Councilor Trent. I'm not going to get into that. Um, and, then un, and then once they show up, uh, they kind of show up rather than just like, hey, we have a search warrant, just like full battalion. And then somewhere, somehow a shot gets fired off. In the show, they show one of the ATF people shooting one of the dogs that's running at them and like bite barking. And because of that, the Branch Davidians think they're being shot at. So they start shooting to defend themselves. And then the ATF, they think they're being shot at. So they start shooting to defend themselves. The ATF have said multiple times that the Branch Davidians have started it. The Branch Davidians said it's, it's just no one's going to know at this point. A lot of the proof and uh, evidence has been covered up. So we're burned. Yeah, exactly. So we don't know what happened, but someone shot first. And then this giant shootout happened. And that ended up killing four government officials on the ATF side and six of the Branch Davidians inside. This began the siege, basically, for 51 days where they, had, they treated it like a hostage situation. They were just trying to negotiate, get people out. And ultimately, they ended it on the last day where the FBI, when, where they came in during the siege, uh, decided to use tear gas to push them out and somehow a fire started. That's another mystery, whether it was on who's, who started the fire and of the fire killed the remaining people that were stuck inside that didn't come out. And that was 76 Branch Davidians of which 25 were children. So it's extremely sad. Yeah, and so watching it is sad. Like you, if you finish the last episode and you're like, well, I need to watch something else now. It's uplifting. Um, <laughs> It's unknown to who started the fire. Like I said, some say it was a result of the tear gas that was used because it is a very flammable tear gas. Uh, um, and others say the Branch of Idian started themselves. Um, so that's, that's kind of like kind of like a group suicide pact is or is one of the theories. But the well, that was what they reported the day it was like on the news when it was happening. Uh, Jimmy Akins. I mean, I'm not saying he knows it all, but. I don't, I don't have any issue quoting him. He doesn't think it was a suicide pact. No. Um, he thinks, he's like, if it was, they would have said it or they would have caught on a bug. He's like, if the Branch Davidians did it, then it would have been one or two guys just deciding to burn the place to the ground. But it wasn't like a, a communal effort. Thing. No. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know. And it's sad. So the show, though, focuses on a bunch of characters. And I have who I think are like the main ones. Gary Nosner, uh, who's my hero character, he works for the FBI. So he comes in during the siege. He was, he's the FBI negotiator. So he's kind of head of negotiations. He trains other FBI agents how to negotiate. Um, he tries to dissolve uh, high tension situations with words. Mitch Decker is on the other side of the FBI and he is the tactical commander. He <laughs> tries, his department is to try to solve and I don't know why this is so funny, but it is to me. Uh, high tension situations with pressure and stress and pretty much like It seems you so counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. If, if anything, I could just do a show on them too, because I feel like Gary Nosner is the way we should live our faith life and like our lives with other people. Mm -hmm. But we usually revert to the way Mitch Decker and like the natural FBI does. 
uh, which we'll get into that a little later, but okay, he is my favorite part. That's my favorite part. Uh, we also have Robert Rodriguez, who works for the ATF. Uh, he's the one that first kind of starts, um, he, he moves in as like a fake neighbor and then to try to like get information and then realizes like, hey, these people are kind of nice. Um, and yeah. that's like a whole nother thing. But Jimmy, in the show, they're like farmers, but they don't know anything about farming. Mm-hmm. But in Jimmy Aiken's show, he said that they were pretending to be philosophy students. And they're like, oh gosh, wait, what? <laughs> You're studying philosophy out in the middle of nowhere, Waco, Texas? <laughs> that's so silly. Yeah, it's like, come on. Yeah, plus there's like a, like two theologians in there. So why would you do that? Right, yeah, like, come on. <laughs> Um, then we have David Koresh, who I've mentioned. He's the leader currently of the Branch Davidians. We have Rachel Koresh, which is his wife. She doesn't really come in too much in this podcast, but I just wanted to mention her. Judy and Steve Schneider. Steve Schneider is essentially David's like right-hand man. He, I don't think he was the first really follower of David, but he ended up joining. And then Judy Schneider, who was the wife of Steve, but is now the wife of David. That's a long story, but we will get into that in a second. Okay. Uh, Wayne Martin, who's a friend of David. I like mentioning him because he came from Harvard. He was a lawyer and then like came here. So once all like, once everything hit the fan, they always kind of turned the Wayne for like the legal stuff. Like, okay, how do we legally get out of this? Um, we have Michelle Jones. I like to mention her because she's from shoot Ozark. That's one reason I wanted to watch the show because she's oh, a great actor. And she that. is the sister to Rachel. Ju- no, she, to Rachel. Right. And she's also the youngest wife of David. If you don't know anything about Waco, David has multiple wives. And then David Thibodeau, who Clint mentioned. And he's basically like this traveler that uh, David Koresh meets and kind of convinces to join them. And so he's kind of like the last joining member as well as the survivor yeah so you you might be getting into this but the reason why he has so many wives is because uh he believes that the 24 elders that sit on the throne in revelation that those are supposed to be his children and so he thinks he has to have 24 uh children to populate those chairs so uh so he's trying to get as many wives as possible so that he can have those 24 children uh, to populate those. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you went into that because I, I really wasn't going to go into that. A lot of the theology of what they believed. But yes, in the show, they speak to it t- two different ways because he kind of speaks to David and he says he has a vision too that man is is weakest to sexual desire. And so everyone that joins um, is to be celibate and that he takes on the pressures of that desire for them so he's the only one that uh um which which from the outside looking in is just like right okay okay sir i know there's (laughs) that and then what you said yes he does believe uh he believes that he is the one um we'll get in we'll get in this now it wasn't gonna later he calls himself the messiah and or a messiah and everyone in the news during the time and a lot of people on the tactical side of the FBI and the ATF said that he thought he was Jesus himself. And that's not true. Uh, he, 
his word for Messiah, which we'll get into in a quote later, is, is anointed one. Um, and the way he explained it to his followers was, is something in your life that helps turn your eyes to God, usually some kind of suffering. And so he thinks he is that for people. And so it's almost like the way that Jimmy Atkins puts it, he's a mini Messiah, not quite the Messiah, but like a mini anointed one. And because of that, he thinks he's given the gift of opening the seven seals of the end of times and providing the 24 elders that will be the one to judge. And so, yes, he has multiple, he knows he can't have 24 kids with one wife in enough time. So he has multiple wives, Um, but he does it oddly strategically to where there's really nothing legally against it. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Well, until he starts, until he, until he marries the younger child. Um, Can I say something to the Messiah thing or should I wait on that? Uh, Go ahead. Okay. So it's, it's cool that you mentioned him being like a mini Messiah though, because that's actually where we also get the, the word Christ from. So the Greek version of Mashiach, which is the, the Hebrew or Aramaic, is Christos, which is where we get Christ. And so by our baptism, we actually all become, we're all anointed, right? And that's literally what Messiah and, and, and Christos means, to christen, right? That's why mm. baptism is called the christening. And so when we are baptized, we are all technically made these mini Christ, right? We're supposed to imitate Christ in that. Uh, we're being, yeah, because we're being anointed. Yeah. Like there's the anointing of the oils and everything. Exactly. So we're being anointed. And in that, we take on the roles of priest, prophet, and king, the same roles that Christ himself had. So as crazy as this sounds that he is the like mini Messiah, and he did take it to a completely different perspective than we perceive right. as as Catholics and the majority of Christians. But I, I think it's fair for us to point out that there is some kind of connection here that, oh, that yeah. we can appreciate uh, without just jumping to conclusions of these people are so out there, which it's, some of their stuff is pretty out there, but like we, we, the point of the show is to find like those, those bridges. So I just wanted to mention that. No, I think it's, I mean, that's, that's what makes this show so hard is like, because they're religious he quotes scripture all the time and it's like yeah that's what it says but then he acts out of it and you're like well that's not what it meant (laughs) it's what it says Uh, not what it meant (laughs) yeah and so it's 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 like he was so close but not quite and it's just yeah so that actually goes on the next thing is i wanted to really touch on just the the good and the bad themes when we compare the branch davidians to or what they were doing to our faith and really the one big good is uh they they strongly strongly lived a like a monasteristic lifestyle they really separated themselves from well or so it appeared a lot of people did i think david was the only one that really didn't but they separated themselves from their needs and desires and they farmed they they washed their own clothes i think they even like the, the women like made and sewn like vests to sell for money. And, you know, it was even, you see, we see it when David Koresh is talking to David Thibodeau and he's asking like, Hey, if you're really going to join, which, you know, you have to make a decision. You can't just like stay here and then leave. We need to know if you're staying, staying or going to go. You can't, you know, no drinking, no alcohol, no drugs. I know this as well as you're probably not going to see a lot of people on the outside. You're not going to get a lot of the comforts. You're probably going to share a bed, but are you okay with that? And he said, yes. And he gave up a lot of things. And 
I, th- I think you see it in David Thibodeau the most, but he got a lot out of that. It, Do you have anything it, to speak on that? Yeah, it, it reminds me of a maybe a skewed version of the Benedict option, which I, I know Steve has talked about on here before because he went to a Benedictine college. Um, but the essentially the Benedict option is the, well, going back to St. Benedict, right? He essentially created what we understand as Christian or even just Western monasticism. So all monasteries, monks, all that stuff kind of came from his discipline of, of what it means to seclude yourself from society. And the idea is that not that necessarily everything in the world is evil, but by withdrawing, some of us withdrawing ourselves from that, we can perfect our lives and focus uh, on just the spiritual aspect and just the necessities uh, and not have anything that's excessive or unnecessary or glamorous, but just focus on the bare essentials of life and uh, prayer. And so most, most of what that looks like is typically they'll focus on um, work of some sort, which you already ex- expressed. Like even the women had their uh, like clothing that they made and the guys were mainly focused in selling guns uh, legally. Yeah. Um, we, th- we think uh, so there's that. So work prayer, which they definitely did. They had a, like prayer times three times a day or something like that. It was, it was awesome. Right. That's f- phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, so work prayer and then um, study is usually another one that's thrown in there, but it kind of did as well. Yeah. But that the, the other disciplines beyond that kind of vary depending on the, the order, but we see that kind of happening here to a certain extent. Like you said, sometimes they'll still sneak away or not sneak away, but <laughs> certain people will do stuff outside of the community but I, I haven't watched this in, in a while, but if I remember correctly, I think he even talks about this at some point of like, we need to prepare ourselves because the, yes. wh- whatever their word for the end times is coming and we are the ones who need to be ready. We are the ones who are going to rebuild. Yes. Uh, and so it's this idea that we need to separate ourselves, even though it's going to be hard and it might not seem like it at the time. We need to prepare ourselves for, for what is coming in the future and take away the theology. And this is the Benedict, Benedict option. It, it reminds me a lot of, you know, uh, Exodus 90, which is yeah. built on three, three pillars, which is prayer, asceticism, and uh, fraternity, you know, and, and they prayed together, if not outside of that, but every day, maybe possibly more than once a day. Um, asceticism was them living where they were with what they had. And then fraternity, they lived together. The men slept together and the women, there was like a women's first floor that the men couldn't go to. And every time they ate, they would eat in like the common room together. It's not like you were like, go eat whenever you want. It was like, okay, it's mealtime. We're breaking bread together. That's literally what I thought of when I saw like that dining situation was when I, when I went to go visit my Trappist monk friends back in college it was kind of even a similar layout, you know, where they, they have this, this communal thing. It's like Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Certain houses in there, certain quarters, you can't go to the other quarters, you eat together and then you study on your own time. Yeah. The bad stuff with the Branch Davidians or not really the bad stuff. Cause we already talked about one, but the skewed stuff, one would be the mini Messiah. Like you see, we already talked to the good in that. We already talked to where, how he, skewed what he thought another one would this is the big one we already talked about too but the the bigamy 
where he had multiple wives, but he really was only legally married to one, which is why they couldn't really get him for that. And at the time, you could marry, uh, I think, 13 or 14-year-olds with parent consent. And there was always parental consent, except that Michelle was 12. And that is where there, there was also something like legally outside of, I mean, all of that is like spiritually not right, but that's yeah. where the one legal thing happened. She and was last, definitely older in the, in the show, but uh, they, they still show how uh, Tibby was, was a part of that kind of cover up too. Right. Exactly. But, but I think just to, to do our fair share here, like, uh, with, with the, the bigamy, like getting to the, the, the root of uh, polygamy, I think is the word we're looking for with the, with this multiple marriages and, and his comment that you mentioned before of like, this is the greatest temptation. So within a lot of the theology of the body stuff, I do, uh, gosh, now I'm going to forget who said it, but I'm pretty sure it's John Paul II. But there's this Latin phrase that essentially translates to the greatest goods are the things that corrupt us the greatest. Um, and so, we see that one of the great greatest corruptors of humanity, and this is exactly what David Koresh was saying, is our sexuality as one of the greatest temptations. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons for that is because it is one of the greatest goods. And that's like something that's confused a lot with the Catholic Church is we don't hate sexuality. In fact, we believe it's one of the greatest things we can experience here on earth, period. I think the only thing that would be above that would be uh, the sacraments. I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's actually funny because in the, uh, I pretty much, I pretty much, I listened to the uh, Council of Trent podcast by reading it because there's like a transcript of it. And something that Jeremy Atkins touches on with the miniseries is that they really just tiptoe around the bigamy and polygamy. Like they, they mention it, but they don't like, they don't portray it in a bad sense. And J- Jimmy kind of assumes that it's because of this, like this is uh, the temptation of, of our, our sexuality and sexual desire is the one thing that's being so evolved right now in, in 2020 and moving forward. And he's like, what's, what's next would be polygamy. And what's next after that would be being able to marry children. So they didn't really like push too hard into that on the show because that just makes sense for it just to be kind of like, mentioned but then bypassed it could also be with uh with tibby being a part of the the show right not wanting to like push any buttons or or sort of topics the last thing i put for a bad theme with them would just be um assuming to know revelation like the end of the world the end times one of my favorite quotes is from lanky guys who said like you know have hope you know as 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 if we have like you know ten thousand more days but live as if he's coming tonight so we do believe in the second coming of christ and advent and all that but to assume that you know what day it is or like all these like the way that he took on that messiah role was skewed scripture says you know not the day nor the hour so right i Um, i I just think throughout history that's been a, a very common thing of people claiming to know and jesus from the very beginning saw this and said you don't know yeah. Only the father knows. Yeah. And that goes into the overall themes that I have right here um, for the show. And one of them I put down was speaking for God versus listening to God. Mm. And it's, it's, 
I think this is this happens to all of us where David Koresh really thought he was listening to God. But I think he was assuming a lot of things and and speaking for him. I think the one time he got it right was when the lawyers showed up and the radio, like they were able to get communications and then something else happened. And he's like, that's a sign that we need to leave. And I was like, yes, okay, get out of there. And then he, <laughs> he screwed that up too. But there, there's like, there, yeah, I think we soften too. I, I, am, I, I have a fault of this where I think I've told the story on here before where I was praying for guidance and God showed me like me on a boat seeing like I was like kind of asking where he needed to go and he showed me the island I needed to go and as soon as I saw the island I grabbed the steering wheel of the ship to go there and God's like no let go like I'm steering like I was just showing you like we're headed that way and I think that often happens to us when we hear God and then we immediately act and screw up whatever everything God's trying to do or show us because we just we're impulsive goes back to what I said with the two FBI guys. One person's like wants to act. The other person's like, we need to wait. Another one is actually the book of Gary Nosner, which is called Stalling for Time. And he has this method that he tries to use during those 51 days called trickle, flow, flush. And I think this is actually really powerful if we apply it to our own spiritual lives. And, and the idea is, they couldn't get them to come out. And they actually agreed in the very beginning to come out. And then David Koresh got embarrassed because they showed his message live and everybody thought it was ridiculous. And so he was like, we're not coming out. So the, um, the more forceful people were like, well, now we got to do our job. He's like, wait, 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 just because they went back on their deal doesn't mean we need to do anything. Let's just, let's try trickle flow flush where if I can agree to get two people out, trickle out, like one at a time, small people, then some of the people will be like, oh, well, they're coming out, so I'll go out. And then we'll, ha- we'll get like a group of people to come out, then they'll flow out. And then David's not going to like want to be the last person in there. So he's going to get everybody to come out. So it's going to be like, like a small bit, then more, and then there's just a flush. It's just a simple tactic. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important about this is when they start doing this, they, when they get their first trickle, the uh, Mitch, who's the guy that works for the tactical division, says five people isn't something to celebrate about. And Gary's like, no, that is like, that's the trickle. Now we're waiting for the flow. And I think celebrating over small wins in our lives allows us to recognize when we when the big wins come. Well, I, I think this actually ties into another theme that you have in your notes here. Uh, so sorry if I'm jumping around, but no, go see, ahead. Seeing, jump around. Pe- seeing people as people, right? If if we see the value of the person, five uh, yeah. people is amazing. Yeah. Right. Christ left the 99 for the one, right? right? And they got five out of 73, I think was the number. Is that what you said? 70 something. Uh, right? Wait, uh, seven, uh, well, 76 died. So technically they got, I don't know. There was like a hundred and some people in there. So they got a good bit out. Right. And so, the, I mean, they're not great odds, but like it, every one of those lives should be celebrated, every single one of them. And there is something to the recognition of like, I think when people are most hurt or like just feel the damage of, of the situation is when they hear the, the 23 
kids or 25 kids, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something to that too. Like we recognize the innocence of a child as being something that's, that's really like just awful. You know, we, it's yeah. not something we want to lose. Um, and there's something to that too. I don't, I don't think we need to go into that. Um, but yeah, just the idea of like each one of those lives, even, even the adults, even the, the men who were, were fighting back, all of their lives have value. And we need to recognize that if, if one of them, I'm going to use the word converts, but repents, lays down his arms and comes out, that should be rejoiced. You know, seeing this as a victory, not in the sense of we beat you, but in the sense of you're, you're being saved. And I think there's something there that we as Christians need to understand better. Not that, for example, like, like a, an argument with an atheist or someone of, of a different denomination, a lot of the times we see that as, ooh, I have better arguments than you. I have better logic than you, whatever. And we see it as I beat you. Right. Rather than a, a chance of extending an opportunity for salvation. Yeah. No, I think that's big too for, you know, uh, you know, you and I both working in youth ministry, you know, we see sometimes we take a hundred plus or even smaller numbers of kids to an event or a treat only to have one really affected. Um, like the others were like, that was fun, but one like experience, like truly experienced Christ. And it's like, well, that's one. Um, or like even at a conference, I think of like uh, uh, Steubenville's or something of like all those kids went, you know, the thousands of kids and only one person encountered Christ. That's one more person that encountered Christ that day. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge win. So that, yeah, that's a good point. That actually helps me actually these last two themes I can combine together too. One is assumptions and labels, which I was going to combine with seeing people as people uh, combines easily with the other theme of acting out of fear, fear versus acting out of faith and reason, which is what we see in this show. And the ATF, the, the FBI like uh, command unit, they all act out of fear because they're looking at the, the Davidians as, as labels. Like they're, they're saying, well, he's a polygamist. He's, uh, they're, they're, he's he's crazy. Yeah. They're gun toting people. Um, he's crazy. They're doing illegal stuff. There's even a point, I think, I don't know if I have the quote in here, but there's a point where Gary says, when are you going to see these people as people? And Mitch says, I do see them as people, but they're people I don't want to hang out with. And so the way he's acting is like, I just don't like them. Um, but if they were to respond with reason or the way we put that in our, in our faith is, you know, faith and reason are the same. We've talked about that on the podcast before then everything would have gone so much better. I'm sure people still would have died, but there would have been so many more lives saved. Um, I don't know if you have anything else for acting out of fear, but that's just a, that's just the entire show. Yeah. I I think all three of those themes tie together because the reason they act out of fear, like you said, is because they, they have those assumptions and those labels, right? They, when we don't see them as people, it's easier to fear what they are and what they might do. Um, but when we see them as as people, we understand their story. We understand where they're coming from. And that's one of the beautiful things about the method that uh, uh, what Gary. Was Gary, that Gary uses it, and the, the guy who spied too, Robert. They yeah. started to hear the story. 
Right. Even though they didn't necessarily agree with the, the theology or, or the beliefs, they knew the people and they knew the story. And that's why it was effective. And they saw the person. And like you said, they, they acted not necessarily for faith for them, but out of, out of reason and seeing this is a human person. And I want to do whatever I can to make sure they walk out of there alive. Whereas the, some of the others were very much, I want to get home to my wife and be done with this whole thing. Or yeah, and, and we can't trust them to do it right. safely. We need to go in and assert our force to, to just end this. Right. And it, we might lose some people, but that's a risk we need to take because they're dangerous. Yeah, and that's actually huge that you mentioned that because, because when Gary started hearing their story, Gary knew the tactics that the other FBI's were wanting to do with the tear gas and everything else. He's like, you can't keep punishing them and you, or, you, or you can't keep pressuring them because in a normal hostage situation, that would work. I know that it's a tactic that's been tried and tested and approved. He's like, but this is a different situation. These are faithful people. The more that you push them, the more that you test them, they're just going to think that it's a test of God and they're just going to resist more. They're going to become martyrs. Exactly. He's like, they're just thinking they're doing something for God and you're, 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 you're ruining it. And the, and the, but the more that they see resistance, the more they think they're more dangerous. And it's just, it was just this boiling pot that built and built. Yeah, it was a mess. But that's essentially what I have for, for major themes. All, all I have left, I'm not going to go through all of them for sake of time, but I just have kind of stockpiled some of my favorite quotes in the show that we can take out of context and just kind of break open with like, how can we apply that to ourselves? Okay. Uh, so the first quote is the first one you see in the show. And it's when David's talking to everyone in, in the compound and they're doing one of their prayer mornings. It kind of will seem like it was like a normal Sunday morning at like a Protestant church. And he said, this morning I woke up with a funny feeling right here in my gut. It took some time for me to put a name on that sucker. I thought I ate something bad, but that wasn't it. And then I realized what it was joy. But how could that be out here in the middle of nowhere? No running water, no stuff in this rickety old house out here in the middle of Texas plains joy. See, I don't know about you, but I, was, I wasn't raised out of joy. I didn't have much joy growing up. But now, after all this time, how is it that a man can find joy here? Wayne, you got your law degree in Harvard. Was that enough for you? No. No. Mike, you ran your own pool company. Was that enough? Sure wasn't. Not even close. See, that's the big trick. It's never enough, no matter what you do. So how is it a man can find joy here? I'll tell you. Joy doesn't come from having something or being something. It comes from becoming. Becoming more than you are today. What do you think? Yeah, two things. So the first thing that comes to, my, comes to mind is uh, just from, from that opening like reflection of how he, he was confusing joy for something bad right he's like i had this funny feeling in my gut and i thought it was i ate something bad he thought he was sick and i think we can sometimes mistake certain situations which should be joyful for something that is bad uh and a lot of that comes to our outlook on life you know or our being optimistic versus pessimistic typically i'm more of a a, a realist slash pessimist so this is something i personally struggle with right but we can find 
in the small things that joy. So that's the first thing I thought of. And maybe the bigger theme here is what it says at the end of how um, joy doesn't come from having something or being something. It comes from becoming, becoming more than you are today. And I think this is actually something, maybe not in the context that he's speaking about it, but I think this is something that is perfectly on track with Catholic theology. And and here's why I heard, and it might've actually been Jimmy who said this, uh, but someone I was listening to recently was talking about how we as Christians and as Catholics, we're not trying to become the best version of ourselves. That's kind of a catchphrase that's being thrown around Mm -hmm. both outside of the Christian world and in, but we're not trying to become the the best version of ourselves. We're trying to become the most whole version of ourselves, right? Because when we are whole, we're becoming what we, we were meant to be, what we were created to be. And that's kind of what I thought of when, when you're reading that quote is just when we are becoming, what does it say there? Becoming more than you are today. Uh, I, I see that not as the becoming the best version of yourself, but becoming the wholest version of yourself, the most complete version of, of who you are. And ultimately, that is someone who, uh, well, ultimately, ultimately, that's someone who doesn't sin, right? Because sin is, is, is missing the mark of who we're supposed to be. Um, and that's obviously very difficult to do, right? Uh, no one is without sin. So we're never going to perfectly reach that on this side of, of heaven. Um, but that's what we strive for. We strive for that perfection and, and becoming as whole as we possibly can. So that's, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, these next two, cause they're long, I'm going to combine them and shorten them. So, uh, this next situation, Gary is kind of talking in his, in his big FBI department after one big screw up that we see before Waco. And he's arguing why negotiating was like, better essentially than like just stockpiling more guns and pressure and he says look my dad used to say you don't earn trust by telling people how good you did you earn it by saying the hard stuff and this makes you think of testimonies or evangelization where like we we don't tell you know you're not gonna like break through to someone by one bragging or two just saying you know I met Christ or this, you have to share in one speaking about your faith, but also speaking about the broken parts of you. Um, And one of my favorite scenes in this entire show series is actually when David Koresh gets David Thibodeau to come to the commune because he hits, he hits discipleship on the head. He essentially, they went, David Koresh has a band and they go do gigs and David Thibodeau was leaving and he noticed he was a drummer and he's like, Hey, our drummer backed out. Do you want to drum for us? And he's like, are you any good? He's like, why don't you come find out? And he just invites him to come do something fun and they play and David Thibodeau has a great time. And then they're sitting down afterwards, just drinking and talking. And he just asks him like, Hey, you know, you drum, you, I, I just like, you know, I just learned a lot about you from drumming and they start talking about their broken past, how he learned about David's brokenness with his parents. And then David Koresh shared his brokenness from his mother and parents. And they kind of like touched in on that, but like opened up. And then he's like, do you know about scripture about God? And he's like, no, I, I know what you're talking about. And he like, he's like, man, 
all your answers are there. Like we're all broken, but if you want to be unbroken, you have to go to God. And he's like, that's not me. He's like, I'm not trying to push it. I'm just, I want you to know. And he's like, if you want, you can just come hang out with us. We're just like, we're a family and it's cool. And he offered him just like a place to be known. And that's where David Thibodeau opened up to the idea of scripture and God. And I thought it was just a beautiful thing. This thing where David Koresh was not afraid of saying the hard stuff. He did always say how good he did. He did brag, but I don't know. Do you have, you have more on that? No, I didn't even think about this, but that's, that's a very interesting situation. Uh, I think you, you paint it really well. And yeah, he doesn't start with the, the scripture. He doesn't start with the theology or the apologetics. Not that that doesn't work for some people. I mean, that worked for, for me, I think, uh, growing <laughs> up. But that's not going to work for everyone, right? And so it is important that we start with the just the relationship. And he did that. Yeah. He, he created he that, that trust in the way that you just said, and, and from Gary as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this next one is, I'll just read the crux of it that I really wanted to touch on, where once again, Gary is arguing about what works better. And Gary ends up saying, there's a paradox to power. The more force you bring to a situation, the more likely you are to meet resistance. If we could spend some of those resources training agents to negotiate, I guarantee that you would invest a lot less in body bags. And so this goes to the theme of uh, using words before like action or I don't know how else to put this really. I guess one thing that comes to mind is like that idea um, where Jesus is sharing and the idea of like, if you have an issue, go to your brother first. And then if that, then take it here and take it here. But like the FBI skips all those steps and just uses force immediately. Yeah, I think this goes back to our our conversation on the themes before, because this seems to me more of a recognizing the person as a person rather than an, an object or an objective, right? You see them as an objective to to conquer when you're trying to defeat them. And that's kind of what I was, yeah. what I was bringing up before. And also, it's I guess it brings up the idea of what does it mean to have power? Because you think about the kings in scripture who were powerful, but they were only powerful because they were ruling out of fear. And then you think of Jesus, who on paper does not seem powerful, but was extremely powerful, not only because like he was like an incarnate like God. But I just, yeah, but and not only because he could perform miracles, but like he could get people to follow him better than in, like any of those kings or or pharisees or anything like that and like so what is it that's what i think the paradox of power like you can have force but you're more likely to meet resistance yeah um, i I think what we see in lord of the rings star wars all those things and i think what you're identifying there is like especially as christians we believe that the power comes not from your your dominance over something but your um uh your control i think is, is a better word your control of yourself Right. So I'm able to control my emotions. We talked about this in Avatar. If you can control your emotions, you can control your, uh, your limitations, your, your temptations, all those different things. Uh, that's true power. Right. And that's true freedom is what we would say as, as Catholics as well. Um, and that's lost when you seek to dominate others. You lose control of your emotions. You lose control of your limitations and your temptations. And it's just uh, an attack. Um, and so I think, I think we lose a lot of, of that as well. 
Yeah. These next two, right before the last one, is, are, I think, some things we might have faced previously. Uh, I don't know where you are at in uh, 2020 COVID time, but previously in quarantine, I think we could have faced these things, maybe even now. But there's just, I think it's two situations we could face with discernment um, or our faith lives that we get frustrated with. One is with Michelle, who's the 12-year-old, the, the youngest. Um, and I don't know if she really said this, but she says in the show where she shares with her sister that she's upset because she was 12 when David had his vision uh, to marry her. And then her sister had a dream that demanded it happen. And it just, it just happened. And all of a sudden, she was his second wife. And, and she didn't have any say in it. And then Rachel's like, but hasn't David been good to you? She's like, that's not the point. I love David, but I have never had a choice in any of this. And I think that could happen with like our vocation maybe, or just something we're called into where we, I mean, I'm not saying David is God, but I'm just saying like in this, in that comparison, we might not like exactly where we're led. And we get the frustrated, like, what about what I want, God? And it's sometimes not always about what we want. We do have the choice. That's the difference. Like, we're not stuck in a commune and we're forced. Uh, we have free will. And that's uh, why our God is our beautiful and merciful. But what we want is not always exactly, exactly what God wants either. And then the second, before I let you say anything on that, is um, David Koresh talking to Judy, where he's waiting on a sign from God to come out. And he shares that God's not speaking to me anymore. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And Judy reminds him, like, you know, you always say to trust God in the, in the light is easy, but to trust him in the dark, that's faith. Um, and I don't know who to, to be vulnerable. I think that's where I'm at right now, where like, it's hard to kind of hear, feel, or recognize God um, in a lot of this pandemic. But I know I don't like, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to like leave my faith. I still believe in the creating God and all that. It's just, it feels kind of desolate. And I think those are two things we can face very commonly um, in our journey. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to speak to, to that first one. Cause I, go ahead. I understood the, the theme that you're trying to pull out of that one with Michelle and Rachel completely differently. Um, okay. What did you, what did you see? So I, I see where you're going with that, but I, I, maybe this is just because I experienced growing up. Um, so I came into my conversion, I guess I've always been Catholic, but I had like the reversion when I was about 17. So 17. So end of high school through college, I had this experience where um, I, I go to mass by myself. I'm, I'm a young man. And so what I would have is all the time, these people coming up to me and saying, are you a seminarian? Are you going to be a priest? You need to be a priest. You need to be a priest. Right. And there is something to that of like other mm. people can help you in your discernment. Right. But I don't see David Koresh as the God figure in this situation. <laughs> I see him as those little old ladies at church who kept telling me what my vocation was, even though they didn't know who I was. And there's something really powerful. And, and this is one of the ways that we understand discernment is through the perception of others. But the key here is it's through people who know us, these little old ladies who had never spoken to me before. And they only think I need to be a priest because they saw me at mass. I think that's something that's very unhealthy 
for our church and for our relationships and our vocations, because we, we need holy men who are, are in marriages too. We need holy men who are going to be good fathers. That's where priests come from. Um, and so I, I took issue with this. and This is one of my pet peeves. So you can stop me from getting too high on my pedestal here. No. Um, but I think there's something to that where when we don't take the time to know the person, then we can't really offer insight into their vocation. Like there are a lot of people in my life, you're one of them, who if you offered insight into what you felt my vocation was, that would mean something. And I, w- I would take that as like, you're someone who knows me. But this lady who I'd never spoken to before, that's not someone who knows who I am. And so I don't feel like they really can see uh, where God's calling me because that's a process, right? And if you're only seeing a snapshot of that, it's kind of hard to, to understand that. So that's where I understood that one. No, that makes sense. Because uh, now, now I'm seeing it a lot like the conversation we had last week where uh, Zuko had to learn, like, learn who he was and his purpose on his own versus like his dad or people telling him what his destiny was. Yeah. And the reason why those people couldn't really tell him was because Ozai and Azula, even though they were family, they never took the time to actually know Zuko. But Iroh did. And that's why Iroh was able to offer that insight into his vocation because he knew Zuko better than anyone. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. So that's kind of the point that I'm trying to get at there. Yeah. And then that, that other quote that you brought up, yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, I know I've felt in kind of that same situation. I would be appalled if anyone has gone through 2020 and not felt that <laughs> at least for, for a moment. But yeah, this is something that's really been on my heart a lot. And uh, I've brought it up in our Exodus 90 stuff. But just like, there's all so much hopelessness and despair and understandably so. Like, there's just so much stuff going on. We're secluded from our communities and those who love us. And we feel apart from our relationship with God. I've talked to a lot of just faithful Catholics in the last couple of weeks alone who are like, I don't even want to go to church. Now that we, we can go back, I have no desire to go. And it's kind of this out of sight, out of mind. We've been so far apart from this relationship for so long and so far into despair of the situation that we've been living in that we are so slothful, I guess we, we don't desire to go back because we're complacent with where we are and not even complacent. Like we know it sucks, but we've forgotten how good it can be. And so, and as Christians, we're called to be that light, but we're struggling with it ourselves. And so you, if you do go to church, I've been looking around like, and there's just people who are just broken. And part of that's beautiful because when you're broken, where do you go? You go to church, right? You go to God. So there's some beauty in that, but also like we need to do something better as a church and as a people of, of God, like as Christians to be that light and to understand that our hope is, does not lie in all these things that are going on in 2020, right? Our hope is bigger than that. And, and that's something hard to admit. And I've been taking that to prayer literally every day for the last like month month and a half and it's something i'm still wrestling with but i think that's the path we need to go to and ultimately i think that comes down to getting back to the gospel just the basic message of the gospel the fact that we are broken we are in a broken world and christ became man to bring us out of that world to something greater 
And that's where the hope is found, I think. I have nothing to add to that because that's just something I needed to hear myself. So that's really all I had. I had two other quotes, but we've already touched on those themes. So we'll just jump into a uh, challenges. As far as challenges, my the one that I'm I'm just kind of looking at the themes. I really didn't prep any challenges, but what I'm kind of thinking is, do we ever prep challenges? <laughs> <laughs> Seeing people as people in in the idea of acting out of fear, especially right now, in the time where we're wearing masks while we're out, we are, you know having to socially distance, uh, maybe, um, you know, to an extent or, or whatever, but it's it, for some people, they're still very much afraid to go out. They're still very much like when you're in the store, you know, w- avoiding others and that's fine. And I, nothing, no issue with that. I'm, I'm very much um, in between more on the side of, of, of social distancing and stuff, but we have we can't start seeing others as like enemies or as danger. We still need to make sure we see everyone as someone else, like a child of Christ. And we can't live and act out of fear. But we need to start. And and if and if you are doing that, like I did way back in March and April, I was definitely more acting out of fear. Sit down, whether it's in prayer or what, and start acting out of faith and reason. And so. If, if these words that I'm saying are like, whoa, like, how do you do that? Then my challenge to you this week is to, I don't know, pray with that. I'm not telling you to do anything. Don't, because I don't know what to tell you to do, but to sit down and pray with God with like, okay, what is the more faithful thing to you, God, in the way I should live this week? Or what is the more reasonable thing to do rather than I'm just doing this because I'm afraid? I don't, it's not much of a challenge, but it's kind of one that stands out based on like this whole show, this whole siege and actual historical event is a disaster just because people were afraid. And I think, you know, going into trying to get out of 2020, trying to get out of all this is going to be a year where people start living out of faith and reason rather than fear. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's good. And actually the first thing I thought of for a challenge too comes off of that. So it's kind of repetitive, but this morning I went for a run, right. And there's other people walking on the sidewalks and stuff. And as I was like running 10 feet off the trail to make sure I wasn't getting within their six feet or whatever, I I was thinking about how long is this going to happen where we need to avoid people, right? It's so hard to build relationships and to see people as humans when you're avoiding them and they're wearing masks, you can't even see their face or their expressions or, or, or know them. You know, we've lost so much of what it means to be uh, in relationship. And so I think that's really important that we, we don't look at them out of fear, but look at them out of love and say, I see you as a person. And as hard as this is, I'm going to <laughs> avoid you because I love you. Uh, and that right. sounds so counterintuitive, but we need to like just those small word changes that yeah. I'm not afraid, but because I love you, I'm, I need to stay away from you right now. Right. And so my, my actual challenge though, is to take time this week to ask someone their story because we, we're becoming so distanced mm-hmm. by the mass and the social distancing and being locked in our, our houses and, and whatever it is, take time to just ask someone to tell you a story doesn't have to be their full life story or their testimony. Just 
let them share something of their life with you. I was thinking about this today. Someone, someone was talking about how they, they heard some of their grandparents' stories from when they were younger. And, and it just shook them because they, they never knew those things. And, and I think that's really powerful. When we hear someone's story, we connect with them. That's why we share our closest things with our closest friends. And the more we share with those people, the closer we become to them. So ask someone to share you a story. And if, if they want to hear your story, then share a story with them as well. And I, I think that's very powerful. Cool. Uh, shout outs. Uh, do you have any shout outs? I, I, do, I do not. Rachel Meinsinger again. She texted me right before we started recording. She has listened to, I think, like 50 or 60 episodes. Already. Really? Yeah. Just crushing through them. So, yeah. Given, From the beginning? She's been jumping around. Um, okay. But cool. she has less than 100 episodes left, and we have almost 150. So, Jeez, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise... Do you, do you want to, you want to send this out? I would love to. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us on the adventure this week. If you want to reach out to us or follow us, make sure you do so at on the adventure Two on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, the Christ in culture. Make sure you check out our website. You can find everything there, including our blogs, our beautiful faces, uh, <laughs> and, Every episode we've ever done, you can find all that there as well as our guest hosts that we've had as well. There's a lot of cool episodes with fun guests. You can find that at thechristinculture.com. Make sure you like, subscribe, or leave a review on whatever platform you listen to. It helps us a bunch and it only takes you a few seconds. So we really appreciate when you guys do that. With that, I think that's everything. It is. So thank you guys so much for joining us on the adventure this week. And we can't wait to see you again next time. Thank you.